Hello, basketball fans, and welcome to the Dave and Dia podcast. Starting at center from Portland, the wily veteran, Dave Deckard. And at guard from Los Angeles, the patron saint of rainbows and unicorns, your podcast MVP, Dia Miller. Welcome back to Dave and Dia, a Blazers Edge podcast. I'm Dia Miller. I'm here with Dave Deckert. Ooh, Dave, that was, how are you? That was a very NPR intro. I was expecting a little more energy. And then you like just came in with the smooth, smooth professional. Oh, look. <laughs> We, we are Listen. going to talk about growing petunias today. My two boys woke up at 3 a.m. and decided it was morning yeah. and had a little party. And, and they're not babies. I mean, they're five and seven yeah. and would not go back to sleep. So it is now eight o'clock at night and I have zero brain power left from the day. So Dia, <laughs> I wake up at 3 a.m. routinely and cannot get back to sleep. So at least you have an excuse. You have children. But it's, <laughs> but it's different when you're being forced awake at that time than when your body naturally wakes up. I was in like oh, a deep, Oh, you think you my body is naturally <laughs> waking up? <laughs> well, I mean, are you getting woken up? Yes, by anxiety or stress or whatever the hell but, is going but, on. But, sure, but you're on. in a phase of, the, I think the thing that kills me is like i sit because i because i'm a single parent like when i have the kids i'm staying up late at night to try to get you know catch up on work catch up on whatever i need to do mm -hmm. i read something the other day that said something about how you know your life your only life as a parent is the two hours of time after your children go to bed mm -hmm. and that is very true and so i stay up late and so i had gone to bed like two hours before that and i was in that phase of sleep where you're finally just knocked out and then having to suddenly be awakened from that and then they were awake for a while it took a while to get them back to sleep so i'm not downplaying the fact that you wake up at 3 a.m yeah i would be at this point probably taking something for that if i'm gonna be honest but that sudden like wake <laughs> up Dia um, Miller prescribing drugs. That's that's what we that's what listen, we listen, sleep is is I will go to great lengths for good sleep. I, I, I have uh, not slept since Blazer's Edge started. So I mean it'll mess with you. It'll mess with you. So my brain is just not quite there today. <laughs> that's all right. So now we understand the NPR entrance. That's fine. That's that's awesome. <laughs> we can just do that show. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't. Yeah, I don't no. think so. I don't Blazers think. I don't are, think we're serious enough for that. Blazers are very entertaining for many people. All well, right. speaking of N NPR, yes. we have a, a serious topic to begin with. I think uh, mm -hmm. it's the same thing we be began the podcast with last week, but we've got updates. Uh, the Robert Sarver situation. The Phoenix Suns uh, owner <laughs> Dave already doesn't want to talk about it. We okay. Look. This is this to me is a, in a negative situation. This is a positive aspect. So we we explained the situation last week. We've talked about it in detail. But essentially, the Phoenix Suns owner, one of the the majority owner, underwent an investigation. They found that he had indeed treated people like crap, and uh, that wasn't exactly their wording, but we're paraphrasing here. There were things and, like racism, misogyny, various ways it's been described. It's a, it's a little. It's institutional and systemic as well as personal crap. And there was both. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, uh, and he was given a one-year suspension, a $10 million fine, you know, can't be anywhere near the team, has to take a class, yada, yada, you know, the, the bit. People have, now I'm not surprised that fans and, and you know, nobodies, I guess, like us, have been speaking up Excuse about me, it. What? We are <laughs> Dave know, and Dia. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't nobodies People. when we were talking about issues last summer. We were making national headlines. <laughs> I don't know about I, you. I, I think I think I said last week, you know, it's really it's going to take people like the players stepping up and making noise about this. And I think it was the next day our podcast hadn't even been published yet. So I know it wasn't because they listened to our podcast. But the next day, both LeBron James and Chris Paul publicly spoke out and basically said, this is not enough. This is not okay. Something bigger needs to be done, which I greatly appreciate. I think when you have players that are willing to use their voice uh, and their platform to create change and and hopefully push for better decisions uh that's huge there's more that came out but i'll let i'll let you comment on that first before i move on to the next part of it yeah i mean obviously those are the veteran voices i mean lebron is the player of his generation there's not much doubt about that also chris paul former president of the players union you know just Huge Phoenix huge. Sun currently. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it, it, yeah, about his boss, his you know governor, right. so to speak. So the guy who signs his checks is the way to put it. So in any case, yeah, I mean those were uh, large names. I think that you know obviously it's true. I think that you know players versus owners has a long history in professional sports in the NBA, and I would guess that players often feel that they are held accountable for many things. One can look back on style guidelines that were imposed upon players when they were traveling during the David Stern era. You know, uh, Allen Iverson really at the, at the center of that. And it's like, was that fair? Was that okay? Probably not. When an owner does something wrong, I mean, just obviously that no one would defend are they called to account in the same way? I mean, you're going to pick on the players for the, the length of their shorts or whatever it is, you know, uh, and you're going to call that important. But racism and misogyny and bullying and mismanagement in terms of interpersonal relationships anyway are not things to be held accountable for. So you can see where the players would be like, we need to have more of a voice here. And if people are going to be accountable, and by the way, we kind of have been, then that needs to go both ways. Yeah, well, and I think, too, that, you know, the comments that were made by Adam Silver, the the commissioner, who, who discussed the fact that, you know, essentially he said it's not as easy to hold an owner to the same standard. Um, and so they can't do it the same way they would because people are saying, well, why is he not being held to the same standard that a player would or a coach would or, a, a you know, anybody else would be? And, and his response was basically, well, it's harder because he's an owner and there are different dynamics there, which I understand. Um, but that still doesn't mean just because something's harder doesn't mean you don't do it. And so then following LeBron James and Chris Paul, the Suns vice chairman, whose name I will completely butcher, it's not a name I'm familiar with, Jom Najafi, I want to say. I I'm not sure if I said that correctly, so I apologize if I, if I said that 
incorrectly, but I'm going to read his statement. It's a little bit long, but I think it's incredibly powerful. And I think that it's worth read. So I'm going to read it. He said, due to the NBA's investigation and findings, I have no choice but to speak up on behalf of the hundreds of you who have been impacted by your interactions with Robert Sarver and the resulting investigation of his conduct. I first and foremost want to give my deepest thanks to all of you who garnered the courage to share your experiences as difficult as it may have been to help piece together a clearer picture of what work life must have been like for you over these past 18 years. There should be zero tolerance for discriminatory actions of any level in any setting, let alone a professional one. There is no question that the findings determined that Mr. Server, Mr. Sarver's lewd, misogynist, and racist conduct had a substantial negative impact on you and has no place in our society. The report confirmed by multiple eyewitnesses said that Robert Sarver used the N-word at least five times. The report confirmed Sarver engaged in conduct demeaning of female and pregnant employees. The report confirmed Sarver made crude and sexually inappropriate comments in professional settings. The report confirmed Sarver made inappropriate comments about the physical appearance of female employees and other women and made inappropriate workplace physical conduct toward male employees. Words and actions matter. Similar conduct by any CEO, executive director, president, teacher, coach, or any other position of leadership would warrant immediate termination. The fact that Robert Sarver owns the team and owns is in quotations does not give him a license to treat others differently than any other leader. The fact that anyone would find him fit to lead because of, of this ownership position is forgetting that NBA teams belong to the communities they serve. Team investors are merely temporary stewards. If we as sports leaders are not held to the same standards, then how can we expect a functional society with integrity and respect on any level? We owe it to you, employees, players, partners, and your families to provide the same positive workplace environment we would require of any other business. I cannot in good judgment sit back and allow our children and future generations of fans to think that this behavior is tolerated because of wealth and privilege. Therefore, in accordance with my commitment to helping eradicate any form of racism, sexism, and bias as vice chairman of the Phoenix Suns, I am calling for the resignation of Robert Sarver. While I have no interest in becoming the managing partner, I will work tirelessly to ensure the next team steward treats all stakeholders with dignity, professionalism, and respect. Um, maybe one of the most eloquent things that I have read addressing something along these lines, I think he said every single thing that I would want to say perfectly and i just have whether he wrote that or someone wrote it for him whatever the case his name is attached to this i have so much respect for the fact that he put that out there um even if it doesn't come down to that even if they can't push him out the fact that somebody on that level of leadership is saying this is absolutely not okay and here's why and saying it so eloquently that is refreshing yeah, I, I mean, what hits you? What hits you most about that statement? I mean, what jumps out at you? What made you go? Wow, that's, that's what I wanted to say. I mean, a lot of it did. But I think the biggest thing was basically that you can't, you can't allow some that words and actions matter. And you can't allow somebody to treat people with sexism and misogyny and racism, simply because they're wealthy and powerful. Um, I, I think that often in the society that we live in, that is, that's an accurate picture of our society. Often, oftentimes wealthy, powerful people get away with things that they shouldn't. They get away with treating people who are not wealthy and powerful badly. And, and I think that a 
essentially wealthy and powerful person calling out another wealthy and powerful person and saying, listen, your wealth and power do not put you above anybody else. And it doesn't make you above human decency is a powerful statement. I think it's a much more powerful statement than someone like me, who's not wealthy and powerful calling him out. Um, personally for me, I think that was maybe the, the biggest thing. Yeah. Uh, possibly also a man calling out another man, uh, yeah. a, an owner, co-owner calling out one of his co-owners. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of good. I'm glad that he spoke up. I mean, he's talking about an ideal that we haven't achieved, but it's good to be reminded that that ideal is there and should be central, even if it's not. Owners are stewards of their team. The teams belong to the city. That is increasingly less true. We've talked about that over the last few weeks. I mean, Seattle would have something to say about that, for instance. But I like that someone kind of said that. I think, among other things, the NBA systemically could advocate for some of that in addition to some of the obvious things, like a, a reintegration of, what would you say, people. That this is not just about money, that this is not just about an abstract sport, that this is not just about you know, whatever, the functioning system, the NBA in American culture, that at the end, none of that pays the bills, that ultimately it's people and participants and viewers that pay the bills, not as opposed to the players and the office staffs. They're people too. And we've really lost this sense that people who inhabit these positions are people. Players are people. Uh, front office people are people. Uh, people selling tickets are people. And by the way, from what I've been able to determine in many professional sports franchises, those people who work for the teams that don't have their names on the door are not treated real well. I mean, they, they aren't compensated real well. They aren't valued a whole lot. They're seen as replaceable cogs in a great grinding machine. And it's like, to me, you can't split those. How you treat one person is ultimately how you're going to treat another person because you're not, if you have no account for the person who sells your tickets, you probably have no account for the person who buys them either other than the zeros in their checkbook. I don't want to yeah. see that. I want to, if I'm a fan, I want to know that you respect me and you care about me and you care about this relationship uh, that we have. And if you don't care about the people who work for you, I'm not buying it. I'm not, I'm not buying that you give a rat's ass about me. You're just trying to sell to me. And at that point, the whole process becomes a lot less fun. And really, when it gets to this extent, really icky. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think a lot of what you said rings true. I, I think that you're right in that the, the owners aren't necessarily stewards um, for the city, but I think they should be. Uh, and, and I think that's maybe where he was going with that. Oh, yeah. Obviously not everybody does that. Well, some do it better than others. Um, but this seems to be a, a not uncommon thing to have problems with ownership. Um, not to this level necessarily, but problems. Uh, and again, it's that power thing when, when you're in a position, if, if essentially the commissioner of the league is saying, look, this is the worst we can do for behavior that should be absolutely not tolerated 
you're kind of in this position where you're essentially untouchable. You know, your your money and power is going to buy you out of whatever situation you put yourself in. So even if you should be making decisions or, or stewarding a team for a city, um, there's not necessarily something to force that or or I don't think force is the right word, but I can't think of the word that I'm trying for there. But you know the, what I'm trying to say. It, it, it's there's no reason to. There's no reason you can't just and and I think often that's the problem with people garnering money and power sometimes is is if that's not met with balance and moral uh, morals isn't the right word either. Um ethics with some kind of you know with some there if that's if the wealth and the power isn't doesn't come along with also being a good human being and treating people with respect it can become a problem very quickly and it gets out of control and there's there's not a lot of stopping it and and we see that not just in this situation but just in society as a whole so again i think the fact that someone who's essentially his equal, who's on his level, as far as the position, as far as the wealth and power, as far as like you said, being another man, somebody on his level speaking out to this degree, I think part of the reason that's so, it was so powerful is because you don't see that often. Right. And let's let's break down for a second what you said. And this is why you tune into this podcast, <laughs> not just pick and roll breakdowns, but this. OK, y you suggested morals and ethics, and I think those need to be there. But in reality, those have always been all over the board with owners in professional sports from time immemorial. To me, the modern problem is not an ethical one or a moral one necessarily. It is a matter of scale in the economy. Once upon a time, if you look at the original owners of these franchises back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, these were like real estate guys. And by the way, real estate is an interactive profession. I get when you own the company and become fabulously wealthy, you're a little bit removed from that, but you probably didn't start there, right? You, you know, you were out there hustling, selling houses, right? And you had to interact with people or you, you own a furniture company or you work in some other field where you got the sense of the value of interacting with people because you actually, even though you got wealthy or own those companies, you built them or came up to them. And people would buy an NBA team as an investment, but they would come from that background. And by the way, that investment was in essence, a side hustle to most of them. Uh, so that, you know, they, they still kept those kind of interactive, whatever they had from their original business. Okay. This was true up until the time, you know, of the billionaire of Paul Allen, by the way, let's look at that scale for a second. I mean, most of us, I won't speak for everyone. Most of us would think we were doing pretty well if we made a hundred thousand dollars a year. I mean, that, that's, that's a lot of money yeah. for a lot of people, right? Yeah. That's, that's six figures. Okay, that's five zeros after your one. Okay, that's that's doing well. If you made a million, you're doing really well. That's another zero. Add another zero, 10 million, you're wealthier than you ever dreamed. Add another zero, 100 million, and you're just, you know, you own an island. You have to add another zero to get to 1 billion. That's how far removed this level of wealth is from what you and I would consider well off. And every zero you add is is exponential. I mean, it's it's not just adding a little bit. It's multiplying exponentially. You, when you're a billionaire, you're not owning stuff. You're not making stuff, you know, for your living. You're billionaireing, okay? And you may technically own it and you may indulge in it to the extent that it amuses you. 
but you don't have a connection anymore, or at least not in the same way, to the thing you are doing. Your connection to the world is that you are a billionaire. Now, how many NBA teams are owned by either billionaires or billionaire consortiums? It's a lot of them. And in another probably 20, 30 years, it's going to be all of them. Something is lost there. And this Robert Sarver thing is the seedy underbelly of that, the freedom to treat anybody the way you want and indulge your most basic, terrible whims because you think you're untouchable. That's part of it. But this is systemic. It's endemic to the system. And it's not going to go away as long as we have this economic trend and social trend going. And I frankly don't know exactly what to do about that, but I know that this is not an isolated incident. It may be isolated in terms of intensity, although I doubt that too. But you're seeing this become the rule rather than the exception, and I really think something is lost. Yeah, I mean, we're getting into some, what do you do about this kind of stuff? The the thing is that, situations like this have the potential to have a, a a wave impact on the league where you know this is this is not just affecting the people within the sun's organization it's not just affecting whatever you know what happens here with this situation could have implications for the league you know you have enough problems like this and at what point does this become you know, we need to reevaluate the NBA. And that's the thing that I look at this and I think, oh boy, um, you know, this is not just an isolated incident. It's not just a one-time thing. This is part of why we talk about these things on this podcast, because it's not, this isn't, even though it's not directly Blazers related, it has bigger implications than just the Suns. And, and, you know, we've seen this on smaller levels. And so I think that seeing it on this level, we dealt with this last year on a smaller level, you know, and, and obviously slightly different to, to our knowledge. We don't know the details because, you know, legal proceedings (laughs) and all that stuff, but you know what the, the Allen name has not been unsullied in reports Nope. I mean, and, you know, God bless them. I hope that they're fair and equitable and wonderful, but we have absolutely no evidence of that. And frankly, would they know that they needed to be? You know what I mean? And I don't mean to put it, I mean, you're a human being. You should know these things, right? But honestly, it's not, on a smaller scale, it's true of players. If you're an NBA talent and you've been known as that since you were in third grade, you have a very different pipeline than someone who came from a different background or wasn't identified as early. And you grow up in a bubble, right? And that bubble has certain rules and customs that are different for you. And that just becomes normal. I don't think it's different in the billionaire bubble. I I really don't. In fact, it's magnified. I, I would venture, I would guess that billionaires do worse things than upcoming NBA players ever dreamed of because they have way more resources and way more escape routes out of it and it's like if you dig too deep in this and this is part of the problem of like what adam silver is hinting at i think not only do we not have the mechanisms to discipline owners we don't have the framework i mean where where do you stop like we talked about last week and it's like oh this is this is bad and i have no faith in their ability to self-police but uproar like this might be one of the ways in which there is a counter 
And I think that that is important to at least tell the truth about this that is not acceptable, even if we cannot stop it. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens going forward now that some powerful people have come out and spoken up. Um, it wouldn't surprise me to see him forced out. I don't know that that'll be immediate. I think things like that tend to take some time. But um, having you know some key players speaking up, having this this vice chairman speak up, I believe that there was an issue with their spon- one of their sponsors as well, so that they wouldn't be renewing their contract at the end of the year as long as he was there. So I, I, you know, money talks and in situations like that, you start to mess with sponsorships and, and things like that. It, it could change some things. So we'll see. Um, I think so. I have one more but, thought though, really quick, not to get all goody two shoes on you, but the other thing I think we have to watch out for is saying, well, if Robert Sarver resigns, this is taken care of. No, right. it's not. I mean, it's a bigger issue. Misogyny still exists. Racism still exists. And you know, when we see a microcosm of that in our own environments, yeah, we have a responsibility to also speak up, to be the LeBron Jameses of our world, and to say, you know what, it's kind of not okay. It's it's not even kind of. It's not okay. It's yeah. it, we this this has to stop if we're ever going to have any system that's functional for anybody except the very privileged and empowered. But wake up call for all of us, especially in the world of sports, where misogyny is rampant and racism is barely covered you know it's it's like we don't talk about it but it's still kind of there we cannot rest i mean this this is not ending with the robert sarver situation yeah it's something that needs to continue and again it's part of why we bring these things up here even though like this isn't the conversation anybody wants to have you know we all want to talk about damian lillard going out and scoring 50 points if we could talk about that every podcast i'd be totally happy but we also have to take into account that you know, some things are bigger than than basketball and, and bigger than just this one team or this one player. You know, they're they're at the end of the day, people matter, human beings matter. And and that's what we're dealing with here. We're not dealing with, you know, just a, a, a figure head of a of a mascot or I don't know how to say what I'm saying, but it, we're dealing with human beings. We're dealing with players that are human beings. We're dealing with you know, employees that are human beings. We're dealing with fans that are human beings. We're dealing with uh, uh, human beings. And and ultimately, at the end of the day, there needs to be a sense of, of decency, a sense of respect. Um, and until that's the case for everybody, you know, these conversations have to continue to be had. So, yeah. see. And see yeah, for whom is Damien Lillard scoring those 50 at the end of the day, as you say? I mean... It's it's for the fans, right? It's for the connection. Yeah. The reason that 50 points matters is because we have some freedom from this oppressive ickiness. All kinds of racism, misogyny, and all that crap is going on all around us. I don't know about you, but I have a really hard time sitting there. I'm not talking about in the abstract. I get it. We all do. It is going on. And we're literally sitting there right. enjoying the 50 points. I get it. But if like it was literally in the arena with us and we were watching it going on right next door to us in the seat next door, I think most of us would go, wait a minute, let's put a hold on this. I'm not paying attention to the game anymore. This needs to be right. fixed first. Well, we have yeah. to draw that larger. This, this does need to be addressed, or at least when we see it it does need to be spoken about okay so he's had enough airtime uh, a couple other things that are going on with the trailblazers tina thompson 
Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that name, but Tina Thompson is someone to make yourself familiar with if you are not. Um, she is a former WNBA player, but not just a former WNBA player. She had a somewhat legendary career. Uh, she won four titles with the Houston Comets, eight all WNBA appearances. She won championships abroad in Europe and was named to the W25 commemorating the top 25 WNBA players of all time. Um, she retired back in 2014 um, and has been part of the Texas Longhorns women's basketball team as an assistant coach for the last three seasons. Um, but she has been hired by the Portland Trailblazers as a scout. Um, we don't talk about this a whole lot. I feel like we don't talk about the scouting side of things a whole lot. Um, and it's a really interesting side that is pretty hidden. You know, it, it's not a very public thing. Um, I have a couple friends who work as scouts and it's a, it's a fascinating job. Um, but this, you know, this is a woman who knows basketball. This is a woman who has been on a lot of different sides of basketball. And I think that adding her in that position as a scout is, is huge. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm always happy to see, you know, women being hired in, in, in the NBA. Um, and I think that she's somebody who clearly has a good knowledge of basketball and will be a, a great addition there. Yeah. I, I don't know enough about her to my shame to be able to comment, but, uh, I will trust in what you say. And that's great. Yeah. Scouting is, scouting is a pain is what it is. <laughs> I mean, talk about all the work and none of the credit. Nobody sees what right. you do. And by the way, it may not come up overtly until that one play. You know, everybody's looking. It's like, okay, what's their ATO after timeout tendencies? Or if they have one critical play, what's it going to be? And the scout goes out and, you know, like opposing team scouts and watches this. Right. And then does all the homework and then comes and has five minutes, you know, to get all this across and whisper in the coach's ear and every once in a while it makes a difference, but you got to do it because it does or scouting players, which by the way, every Yahoo thinks they can do now. So like becoming a <laughs> professional scout must be, I mean, the dignity, what little dignity there was is probably rapidly disappearing, but these people are intrinsic. They're the backbone. They're the, the white blood cells. So you, you don't think about them until you need them. And then you go, oh, I'm glad we have them. So I, I wish her success. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe this will be an avenue to something more because scouts do rise in the coaching ranks uh, sometimes. So another interesting kind of story that's happening right now, um, Lamar Hurd, who is one of our play-by-play -play announcers, he spoke recently about the whole remote broadcast debacle where the Portland Trailblazers were considering not sending their people on the road for the broadcast. They were going to do it remotely uh, and, and had some really interesting things to say. You know, I think you hear something like that and you hear, well, they're not going to travel on the road. And we talked about that here and why that was possibly problematic. Um, and everybody kind of has their, their thoughts and opinions. But Lamar Hurd, of all people, would have some good insight on this. And he did. And it was actually quite interesting um, that he was not necessarily opposed to not being on the road. Uh, and he talked about being during COVID-19 about how they did some of this remote broadcasting. And he said, 
Uh, this is his words. He said, last season in January and February, we actually did several remote games and not everybody remembers that. Big reason is because some of those things that were problems in 2020, like the audio and no crowd, that wasn't a problem last season. So I think it became very apparent that, oh, this is doable. It's not as bad as it may see from the outside. And then he said, as, as to his own personal experience, he said, here's something I don't think anybody knows, but when we do games remotely, we have a screen in the studio that shows the inside of the arena that the team is playing at. So we have a screen that people see on TV, and then we have a continual nonstop viewpoint of everything we need to see in the arena. Traveling doesn't ensure a better technical way we do the job. For me, when we're at the studio, it's a very comfortable situation. We have space. We have our computers if we need them, our iPads. We have things laid out that you can't do when we travel because we're jammed in the places at each arena. Um, I think this makes a really solid point that, you know, ultimately when they're, when they're calling a game and the broadcast team is there, they're doing it from a spot. It's not like they're all over the place. So they can take cameras and show them what they would be seeing if they were within the arena. I think the point that, that is left out here that we talked about is the relationships that you form when you're traveling with the team and, and that side of things that you see that you maybe don't see so much of when you're staying at home and how that plays a part of, you know, announcing so I, I don't know. I think ultimately the, the right decision was made, but I do think that maybe there was some overreaction and, and it's interesting to hear his side of things there. Lamar's much more of an expert than I am on this because he's actually been there. But if you've watched games where the camera shows the full court the entire time, that view is pretty wide. I mean, those players are pretty small at that point. I think you're, you and he are absolutely right that being in person doesn't necessarily guarantee you a better viewpoint because some arenas, I mean, especially as they filled in really expensive front row seats, took the, you know, announcers, especially opposing announcers, and stuck them up in the rafters. Okay, so it's not 100% guaranteed. But I think there's another element to this too, is that I'm guessing, and this is just me speculating, that's just Dave, the decision was already made to not do remote broadcasting. So there's nothing at stake here at this point. I think you're right. The PR hit was significant. And I, I'm not disputing Lamar's points. I think that he everything he said is accurate and true. Also, like smells like taking one for the team a little bit. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, guys, yeah. okay, let's Maybe. let's calm down a little bit. You know, if, if, if it was actually still up in the air, I'm curious of whether he would have said the same thing publicly. But since it's a done deal and they're not going to do it, there's absolutely no disadvantage to saying, you know what? There are good things about it, too, and everybody should ease off. This was not that big of a deal. And I, I think that was kind of part of the point. This is not that big of a deal. Everybody, let's move on and let's not rehearse this and let's protect the protect the shield, so to speak, protect the logo, protect the pinwheel uh, and the bosses and everything and move on and call games like we're supposed to. So and I think in that way, it was also successful. So, you know, good article, uh, Portland Business Journal. Well done. I, I'll tell you this, too. Lamar Heard is always interesting to hear, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't have guys calling the game or, or women calling the game that aren't interesting to talk to. You know, that's part of what makes them good at what they do. Oh, uh, I've heard a few that were less interesting than others. But yeah, I mean, yes. Lamar, Lamar, I think is particularly I like Lamar a lot. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I do, too. Okay, another kind of shocking one that, you know, caught a lot of people by surprise, I think, is uh, a press release came out saying that Gary Payton Jr. had under, undergone um, abdominal surgery. 
uh, which we as Blazers fans are very familiar with because Damian Lillard underwent abdominal surgery and it took him out for the season. So this is a this is a triggering thing to hear. Nasir Lillard um, too, right? I mean, like this is the third, isn't it? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, maybe they think it works so well with Dame. Let's get everybody in there. Everybody, <laughs> sew those abs in there and get. Yeah. yeah. I need someone. I need someone to sew some abs onto me, honestly. <laughs> um, but so, Day uh, Gary Payton Jr. underwent the surgery. There's not a lot of details. Basically, the details that were released is that this happened uh and he is expected to be fully recovered and ready to go by the time the season starts so uh, i'm glad to hear that i mean obviously we didn't even know he was injured but if there was an injury there i'm glad that it was taken care of and he'll be ready to start the season he's one of the players that i'm most excited about this season so uh i'm glad he won't be sitting out well he's one of the two huge additions right i mean so you, you obviously want him in there uh yeah, yeah. I, it was interesting that we found out ex post facto that this had been done but i understand too i mean not a bit you know you don't want to do uh hey we signed gary payton and also he's having surgery and it's like okay that kind of dims it a little bit uh especially if there's nothing to worry about he's going to be back by training camp which is basically makes this a non-story story but uh, again news in the nba increasingly you know look it used to be you didn't get a ton of news but what yeah. you got was fairly solid. I mean, it was it was facts, and it was you knew the pipeline it was coming through. You knew the timing. You knew how these things were going to be done. Now there's a lot, a lot, a lot of news, and you have no flipping idea where it's going to come from or why. I mean, it can come from agents. It can come from teams. It can come from doctors. It can come from players, uh, and uh, it can come at the time. It can come before. It can come obviously way after. It's just like walking outside and you don't know what the weather's going to be so dress in layers and uh <laughs> buckle up but you know i guess that makes it more exciting for people like you and me well and i i think this is actually even though it's already been taken care of i i do think it's worth noting especially as we watch him play you know if, if there are issues if he if he struggles um those are things to know and and you know i mean with dame nobody knew about that injury for so long um, and then, it, you know, it, it took him several years to, to have that surgery. So I, I do think it's always interesting to know the, the things that are going on, because especially injuries that that require some type of surgery, you know, that can that can stir up issues later. So hopefully he's in the clear and we never needed to know about this in the first place. And it just becomes one of those things that was a random talking point. That's what I'd presume. So, I mean, yeah. unless until, unless informed different, we'll presume that that's just OK. Good job. Routine thing. So the last thing for this week is uh, not Blazers specifically related, but um, NBA wide. There are conversations happening right now with the NBA and the NBPA for some adjustments to, to some things. Um, one of those things being, you know, currently players cannot be drafted straight out of high school. Currently, players have to spend a year. Essentially, they can play overseas. They can play in the G League. They can play in college, um, but they cannot come straight out of high school uh, and be drafted into the NBA. But they are talking about maybe adjusting that. It used to be that they could. Back in 2005 was the last one 
uh, where somebody was drafted straight from high school into the NBA and then that rule changed. So there are people who have been, you know, people talk about that, I believe with LeBron, he came straight out of high school and went into the NBA. So it gets talked about and, and it's confusing if you don't realize that that's a rule that changed, but it changed. Now they're talking about changing it back and making it possible for players to enter the draft uh, immediately out of high school. I have feelings about this, um, but I'll first say the second part of what is being discussed. The second, actually, no, let's talk about this. So I I have feelings about this. I I go back and forth. I, I have a lot of feelings. There's strong feelings, but I also can see both sides. I've had the conversation several times where people have said, do you think that athletes who are headed for professional sports should have to finish college? Should they have to go get their degree? Or if you had a child who was a gifted athlete, would you encourage them to finish college before, you know, putting their name in for the draft? And my answer always is no, I I would not. I would say if you are at a place where you feel like you are going to be successful in a professional sports career, you put your name in for that draft and you go because if you continue to play in college, yes, you may get a degree, but you may also get injured and lose your opportunity to play professionally. Players that are drafted in in their first year of playing make an insane amount of money. Even if you play one year and that's the end of it, you've put yourself in a position where if you want to go back to college and finish your degree, you can do that. If you want to move on and do something else, you've probably made connections and met people where you're in a position to do that. Um, To me, it just makes sense. You can always go back to college later. That's not something that the door shuts on, but sometimes the door shuts on the opportunity to play professional sports. So I tend to say go as early as possible, as early as you think you're going to be successful. That being said, it's really hard for me to think about athletes that are ready to go straight into the NBA from high school. I think a lot of times that one year that they get experience playing at a college level, playing you know overseas professionally, playing in the, in the G League, that really puts them in a position where they're more prepared to come in and play on the level of the NBA. And I think that that's valuable. So I, I have strong feelings both ways. I, I don't know which I feel feel like is better i can see both sides here i hate half measures i mean if there are reasons to keep a player out of the nba at 18 there are also probably reasons to keep them out at 19 so i mean if you're going to do it make it 21 you know make it adulthood or whatever if you're not going to make it 21 let them come in at 18 what's that year really really doing Uh, And for a lot of players, it's just kind of almost a joke. And I'm not saying they don't develop good things, but it's not like, oh, boy, I committed to this, you know, NCAA university. And it's like, yeah, you know what? You're going to be gone in a year. And increasingly, I mean, Shaden Sharp didn't even play and still got drafted. Right. So I don't I, I don't see the sense in it. My question is, okay, are there jobs where minors should not be allowed to be hired? Okay, sure. If you're underwater diving oil drilling yeah you know you probably need to be 21 at that point at least and well trained crab fishing stuff like that are you talking about minors as 18 or under 21 i'm talking about well either way like a 16 year old really you know i'm talking about under 18 but if someone's a minor in a super dangerous job then that's problem so i can see the limit does the nba qualify yeah 
you know, I think probably it doesn't rise to that level. And increasingly so, since AAU ball and other, you know, you know, school ball has become year-round repetitive drilling, destroying these guys' knees before they turn 17, let alone get into the league. What are you buying with doing that more? Why not just let them go do what they were aiming at to begin with? That's my thought. But if you're not going to do that, if you say they're too young, they're too inexperienced, their bodies aren't grown yet, well, again, Okay, then grow them up. Then take care of that. If you really think it's that serious of an issue, take care of that before you let anybody in the league. I don't think they'll ever do that, so I think they should let it go to 18 and just be done with it. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I I definitely don't think the age should be older. I I think my only argument for leaving it is I do think that that one year has a lot less to do with age and a lot more to do with the experience that they garner being in a in a essentially professional or higher level situation Uh, i think that you can see as somebody as a team who's drafting you know as scouts as as whatever else you can see uh more who they're going to be in an nba setting from that year of of playing at a higher level than you can of playing in high school but that's not to the player's advantage especially if they can play so I'm, I'm not also always, that, but sometimes it is. Well, if it is, that's why God made the G League. You know what I mean? It's like if you're on the fence and you're not quite ready to play, there are professional options now where that actually, uh, you know, can be done. I know they've already drafted him by the time that happens, but it's a possibility. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm in those matters. I'm completely pro player, meaning you know, let, I don't think the league has the right to say we need another year to evaluate people in certain cases, in certain borderline cases. So none of you can come in. Now, I mean, if you're LeBron James, you're being drafted number one overall right out of high school. There shouldn't be a rule that prevents that from happening because you're worried about your 23rd pick and need another year to see him. Right. So. Right. Well, and I suppose, too, you still have the option of choosing to do that. The The only thing that this really does is is allow people like LeBron, I suppose, to come straight in to the NBA draft. So, yeah, that makes sense. I, I mean, it seems from what I've read, it seems like this is basically a done deal at this point. Uh, so there's not really a lot to debate about it anyway. But yep interesting yeah i think the experiment didn't really work the one year thing i mean it's trying to make everybody happy and when you try to make everybody happy you make nobody happy Uh, just you inherit all the penalties with not enough benefit it's true the last part of that the second half of that that they are currently discussing and deciding on is essentially it has to do with uh, mental health and essentially they're saying that as of now there's not a lot there to help with players mental health as far as um what's the word i'm looking for here i'm struggling with words tonight that's okay support i'm not sure what your infrastructure there's not a lot of infrastructure yeah 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 Yeah, there's not there's not procedures policies whatever to deal with that so much as there is with a physical injury if a player has a physical injury you know there there's protocols there's they they know the drill with that um, with mental health, it's kind of a different thing. We've seen that a little bit over, you know, the last year or two, I think, especially since the pandemic, um, we've seen a lot of that really coming to light. And so this will essentially shift things a little bit to make it so that teams will prioritize that mental health and put it in a position where it's treated similarly to, to physical health. 
Maybe. And I want to I, I want to absolutely underline the importance of mental emotional health and say there needs to be infrastructure and people need to realize. And there have been multiple players in the past few years who have educated us on this. And I absolutely 100 percent advocate for mental health resources to be available uh, and especially for people who live such a lifestyle that nobody thinks they have any problems and therefore are unlikely to see any difficulties they encounter. I mean, and again, we can quickly underline some of this stuff. You're taken away from your family in a completely new situation. And by the way, all that money creates a whole new set of challenges and issues for which you are probably not prepared, which the money may make it easier, but it also makes it more difficult. You're now fighting for your career uh, and your professional life every single day. You've got a lot of people coming down on you, pushing you to be better. Uh, and you're isolated from the whole rest of the world because you are one of 450 people who do a thing that nobody else does. Uh, so, and by the way, can you build friendships and companionships in the midst of this? Maybe, but you always wonder, are they after you because of your position or whatever? Does anybody really see you? Okay, those that's just the tip of the iceberg of all the things, the challenges that leave gaps for mental health issues, okay? Let alone if you are already predisposed to them. All right, so I want to underline, completely supportive. But I also might smell a rat here a little bit, is that when the NBA is starting to talk about, well, we need to codify them or we need to do whatever, yes, I think they're trying to be proactive and helping with stuff. But I think under there also is, yes, there's Ben Simmons, um, who didn't want to play in Philadelphia, and had mental health health issues or claimed it as that and set out a season. And I feel like rightly or wrongly, the NBA might want some codification in terms of accountability for that, which I think is probably a mistaken impulse, but I don't think it's not there. So I always get, you know, I always ask like what's underneath this. Is it simply compassion for the players or is there also a systemic reason that that's there? And I think in this case, there's a systemic reason. And we have to be really careful that in our rush to help, we don't inadvertently end up also harming or ostracizing people who might already be feeling harmed or ostracized. Look, at the end of the day, mental health is a really tricky thing because it's mental and it's not something that you can just diagnose. You can't. I mean, I know that it can be diagnosed, but you can't, you can look, a doctor can look at somebody's broken leg and be like, yep, that's broken exactly here. This is what we do about it. That's the end of it. There's no debate. Um, with mental health, it's a different story. And I think that the thing that becomes obviously a danger is the judgment that comes with it. Uh, to what extent are people allowed to struggle mentally in, in a situation like this without people saying, oh, well, they're just trying to, they don't want to be there or they're upset with this situation or whatever. Uh, I, I think largely a, a big part of this needs to, and, and some of this, I don't know enough of what is already in place to really speak on this. But if there are not already things in place where mental health is being prioritized to the extent that physical health is, you know, the, these guys are, are constantly working with trainers and doctors and physical therapists and whatever else. They're, they're stretching, they're preparing their, their muscles before they play, they're keeping their bodies in shape, they're working with dietitians, and, and, and they are constantly working at keeping their bodies in shape. They have teams of people around them to help them keep their bodies in shape. There should also be teams around them to help them 
keep mentally in, in a good place. That should begin from the beginning. And it should be something, in my opinion, it should be something that to some extent is required of every single player. And, and it's something that should be done preventatively uh, because of exactly what you said. There are going to be things that these that these men are going to face regardless of who they are, what team they play for, whatever. There are things that they're all going to deal with. Some will deal with it better than others, but they're all going to have to deal with these things. So to me, that needs to be something that needs to be being addressed from day one. And maybe it is to some extent, um, but I think that the, the, the more it becomes prevalent, the more that it becomes talked about, and, and dealt with openly, the more those things need to be put in place and, and need to be uh, a part of the routine. And I think if that's the case, then you're going to deal with less of these situations where you have one player who just suddenly out of the blue is seemingly dealing with mental health issues. That may still happen occasionally, but I think you're going to cut a lot of that out because it's going to be constantly dealt with. I think there is there are some things in place. I think most teams have some kind of infrastructure there. I, I believe increasing awareness will help, right? And increasing acceptance, because this is one of the things you have to be able to talk about or indicate in order to deal with. You, and most people sit in silence with it, right? Because they think they're the only one because it's not really accepted or whatever it is. But you, we haven't solved the problem entirely, though, because there's some ambiguity there. Like mental health is not exactly like a broken leg. It, there's more subjectivity to it. You need more input from the person who's suffering to figure out what's going on. And sometimes you can't figure out what's going on, even with all the input. It's kind of like more like the pain scale that they give you in the hospital. Like, does this feel like a five pain or a 10 pain? Well, what does that mean? Well, we don't really know. And how do we judge what's going on? Well, the pain itself doesn't necessarily indicate what all it says is something is going on. Often they can't trace what exactly is causing it. And there's no real quick fix. So there's that ambiguity. But here's the other piece that gets iffy is that who's employing these uh, people who are helping you through and to what end? Right now. It wasn't that long ago. I mean, Bill Walton had exactly this complaint about the Portland Trailblazers medical staff back in the early 80s, right? That in late 70s that, OK, yeah, you looked at my foot and you said there were problems with it. But your goal was to get me back on the court and you gave me medical procedures or injections that actually ended up hurting me because your agenda wasn't purely my health. It was to get me functional because you work for the team. Well, that was with a broken foot, something you can diagnose. Imagine that situation with a relatively ambiguous and subjective uh, field like mental health. Who's employing these people and to what end? What's the goal? That, I think, needs to be answered. And unless there's some form of independence, I think there's some question about whether players can or should trust that process of dealing with the mental health if it's primarily provided by and run by just the team uh, and for the team's purposes and on the team's dime. And so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of things that need to be addressed in this because of the ambiguity and because of the priorities that maybe we haven't really looked at fully yet. Yeah, I mean, this is obviously not something that has been openly dealt with to this extent over the years. That's why this is something that's being addressed now. Um, and, and it's something that needs to be addressed. And obviously, anytime you add something like this 
to an organization like the NBA, you're, it's going to take some work to get it right. But I like that they're at least moving in that direction. I think it's something that's, that's very important. Right. And, and the question will be what's central about why you're getting it right. And there are two, there are two impulses that are going to be there. Both will always be there for the health of the player and for the sanctity of the process and the team who, who drafted them and depends on them. I think especially in areas of mental health, the health of the player has to be overtly primary if this system is engaged. That there, that all other concerns are secondary until this is dealt with. Otherwise, what you're going to do is you're not going to actually deal with the mental health. You're going to cause people to, to disguise it or give them mechanisms to just cope with it without actually addressing it. And that, when you throw them back in the cauldron of the pressure, is a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Again, you know, this is probably not going to be an immediate fix all, but hopefully the the fact that they're talking about it, that they're beginning to address it, uh, moves moves the needle in the right direction. Very good. Is that it for us today? That's it. Oh, wow. I mean, we covered everything from Robert Sarver to mental health to scouting and nice uh, kind of it's a potpourri. It's the off-season potpourri. We lit all the candles in the candle aisle and just smelled a little of each. And then, uh, you know, onward we go. So for Dia Miller, uh, I'm Dave Deckard. We will be yet again one, one. Actually, this is we're recording this on the 20th, right? This is the 20th. Yes. So next when next we meet media day. And training camp will have started, so we will have something definitive to talk about. And we hope that you will join us again next week, and we will see you soon. A hater sees an opening down the lane, moves towards the hoop, but then Dia comes out of nowhere to swap the shot attempt away, saying, get that weak stuff out of here. Dave scoops up the loose ball. Now it's a fast break the other way with Dia. She's flying down the court. Dave sends her an alley-oop. She jams it. Boom, shakalaka. Cloud is on his feet saluting Dia. I tell you, if she isn't the rookie of the year, they really ought to just stop giving the award. What a talent!